Hey, this is Anna Sussman from Snap Judgment, and I wanted to tell you that we are the production staff here. We're working on some really amazing stories, what I think are amazing stories. Uh, we're working on a story about a pirate radio station in Iraq. Um, someone's working on a story about a Sudanese refugee camp in Kenya that's closing and what's happening to all those people. Uh, we're sending one of our producers uh, to cover this cross-border romantic relationship um, where the husband and wife can only see each other when they meet at the wall, the border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, we think these are the important stories of our time, and we want to bring them to you, and we want to tell them to you in a snap judgment kind of way, which means, um, you know, like really bringing you into that place and telling you what's going on there. And we can only do that with your support. We need your help to tell these stories and to tell a year's worth of these stories. So please help us. Go to snapjudgment.org. Support us any way you can. We really appreciate it. We really need it. And we want to keep bringing you these cool stories. Go to snapjudgment.org and support us. Thank you. Here it is. You've got the best seat in the house. Snap Judgment's Storytelling with the Beat is about to rock our biggest live show ever at Brooklyn's Academy of Music. Lights. Camera. Action. Okay, so, I was 14 years old, and um, it was Friday night, and all my buddies were out running them streets, doing crazy stuff, but not the Washington household. We were on lockup. That's what Dad called Friday night Bible devotionals. Not too pleased. And right then, Devotional consisted of studying the assorted works of Herbert W. Armstrong, our pastor and apostle, an apostle. Again, but there had been a disturbance in the force. You see, Herbert W. Armstrong said that the end time was imminent. Jesus' return was imminent. People were running crazy. It was, What's that, what's that mean? 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 What does that mean? And so that night at the devotional, I asked my father, what does imminent mean? And Pop said, son, the good news is that you will never grow old. Never be decrepit. For real? You, son, will never have to work from sunup to sundown for your family. It's getting better and better. But son, you will never feel the touch of a woman. Son, are you ready for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ?
Welcome. Welcome to the Snap Judgment Show. Thanks, everybody, for coming out here tonight, New York. How you doing, Brooklyn? Where you at, Brooklyn? I gotta tell you, we are so delighted, are we not, to be here today. To the world's finest storytellers that have come to this stage, but before that happens, may I introduce you to my brother in crime? Please say hello to Mr. Alice Mandel. Best in the business. On the bass, Tim Fred, Tim Fred, Tim Fred, Tim Fred. On the sticks, dangerous, David Brand. Our band is no joke, ladies and gentlemen. It's not just the players. This next guest, our next guest is funny and she makes me laugh. Every time I look at this woman, she's saying something to make me laugh. And that's really why we brought her to, she's a, she makes me laugh. That's why she's here on the snap stage, because she's funny, and you guys get to be laugh with me. She travels the world, making other people laugh. Today she's gonna make you laugh. Laughter, please bring her to the stage. <laughs> please bring her out here. Where is she? Jen, Colbert, yay! I guess I have to be funny now. <laughs> when I was 10 years old, more than anything in the world, I wanted to be a Girl Scout. But you have to be 12 to be a Girl Scout. So I was a brownie. I had no such a thing existed. Imagine my fat kid delight when I found out I'd be gathering with other girls my age, also called brownies. This was the best that had ever happened to me. It was beautiful. And then one day, my mom announces she's gonna be our troop leader. thing that ever happened to me was about to be taken over by Stephanie. That's her name, Stephanie. And she ruins everything good. I was distraught. I didn't know what to do. 
then a week later, Stephanie comes in and announces to the troop, we're going to be selling Girl Scout cookies. What? I didn't even know there were going to be cookies involved. It's now still the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. When I was a kid, there were only four kinds of Girl Scout cookies. Today, there are 17. Four. Four. There was the Lorna Dune cookie. Shortbread. Very plain, very simple. I don't know who Lorna Dune was, but the made a tasty cookie. Same shortbread cookie, covered in peanut butter, dunked in chocolate. Thank you, Jesus. Delicious. There is the Thin Mint. Which I think we can all agree should be eaten straight out of the freezer. Yes. What a lot of people don't realize is that that habit was actually created by a skinny <laughs> Yeah, she bought a box of Thin Mint cookies and thought, oh my God, I'm never gonna be able to eat all of these at once. <laughs> what am I gonna do? How will they stay fresh? And then her mom told her to put them in the freezer. And then her fat friend came over and said, don't you have anything to eat in this damn house? The skinny girl pulls cookie from the freezer. Fat girl eats them and is happy. You're welcome. That's how that happened. greatest penultimate champion Girl Scout cookie of the world is the Samoa. It is a ring of shortbread cookie covered in caramel, toasted coconut, striped with fudge. It is to be put on your finger like a ring and eaten into a smaller ring. I like to put one on each finger and eat them in rapid succession. And then whichever finger first got another cookie. Now I don't know if you know this about Girl Scout cookies, but there is a release date. You don't just order the cookies and they show up. There's a day that all Girl Scout cookies cross the globe, I imagine, <laughs> are released all at the same time. I imagine there's one really old Girl Scout who just screams, release the cookies! <laughs> Ha ha ha!
Stephanie being our troop leader is really going to pay off. Because we had to hold on to the cookies until the release date. And my parents had an air-conditioned garage. My dad's a heart surgeon. So inside my garage, for 17 days, there were four flats of Girl Scout cookies. Stacked 12 boxes high. And inside each box were 10 more boxes high. Six boxes wide, four boxes deep. My whole life had been preparing me for this moment. planned in my little head how I was going to eat as many cookies as I could and I had 17 days to do it. I thought long and hard about this, people. We had an alarm system on our house so every time you opened a door or window it would beep letting letting you know a door or window had been opened, and my mother could hear that beep like a hawk. So I had to figure out exactly when the beep happened so that I could somehow muffle it when I was going to sneak into the garage to eat the cookies. I'd spent the better part of that day opening and closing the garage door over and over again. My mother almost beat the But I figured out that if you just opened the doorknob, the beep didn't happen until the seal was broken between the frame and the door. So I would open the doorknob and then just <coughs> You couldn't just cough once. No one coughs just once. You have to remember to trail off the cough. I would sneak down the stairs, very ninja-like, while everyone was asleep. I would get down to that door. <coughs> and then I would just rest the door against the latch so that it wouldn't beep again. I turned the lights in the garage on their dimmest setting. Romantic. <laughs> and I would make my way past the cars, around the bicycles, to where the cookies were. Armed with my library card, which I used to <laughs> Slid open the box. I pulled from the bottom, replaced at the top. I would get the box, again, slitting it open with my library card. Pull it out, very gingerly opening the cellophane so as not to tear it. I would then eat every single cookie in the box. 
my finger and get out the crumbs so that the package was completely empty. Then I'd whip out my glue stick. I was only 10, ma'am, but I was reading at a sixth grade level. I glued the cellophane shut, put more glue on the flap of the package and put the empty box back into the bigger box. Because you see, my story was gonna be, if I was caught, they sent us empty boxes. <laughs> Things go wrong at factories. I snuck down and ate cookies every single night for 17 days. It wasn't even enjoyable at the end. You know how freaking thirsty you get? Cookie after cookie after cookie, and you couldn't just eat a few, the whole box had to go. One night, I couldn't take it anymore. On my way back up the stairs, I stopped in the kitchen and started chugging milk like it was my job. My dad came down and caught me chugging milk. What's wrong, he asked. I had, I had a coughing spell. I don't know if you heard <laughs> me coughing, but I'm, I think I'm okay now. And I went to bed. And on the 18th day, the day that the cookies are to be My mother calls me into the garage and I can tell they said in a pep sales talk. <laughs> Stephanie is mad. <laughs> she calls me by my full name. Jennifer Lee Cooper, get your fat little ass in here. Come here. Come here. I want you to stand right here. Come here. I want you to stand right here. Come here. I'm not gonna hurt you. Come here. Child, did you eat 144 boxes of cookies? Did you? Is that what you did? Don't you lie to me. I don't know what you're talking about. What do you, what do you mean the, the, the boxes are sealed? How, how could I have eaten 144 boxes of cookies? And then she held up my library card. <laughs> that apparently in my cookie drunkenness, <laughs> I had left inside the last box of cookies. <laughs> I took a licking for every one of those cookies.
I'll tell you what, I realized who the real victims were in this story. It's those 144 people in Memphis, Tennessee, who never got their cookies. All they wanted was deliciousness. They waited and they waited and that's all they wanted. And I hope that one day I'm rich and famous enough to put all those 144 people on a bus and drive them to that Girl Scout cookie factory in the sky. Salvation and Samoas for all. What did I tell you? Did I speak the truth? Jen Colbert. You're going to hear more from Jen. So much more from Jen on the snap. She's on tour right now. She's always on tour. Check out when she comes to your town at jencolbert.com. And we've got a special surprise. Jen's performance, along with every performance you hear on this show, is available in Technicolor Film Splendor at snapjudgment.org. See what you are hearing. The score was composed by our resident musical genius, Alex Mandel, and performed by Alex and the Snap Judgment players, David Brandt and Tim Frick. Now, when the Snap Judgment Aces Wild Live special continues, Josh Healy's epic battle of grandmothers and Jamie DeWolf takes us into the dark forest. Cinema of Sound, Snap Judgment Live, stay tuned. Hey Snap Nation, this is Davey and I'm going to tell you a quick little story. Don't tell Glenn because he'll make fun of me. But many, many moons ago, I was in my car, stuck in traffic, and then the Snap Judgment Spooked episode came on. And so once I got home, after I changed my pants, that episode of Snap Judgment compelled me to just drop everything in life and make public radio. We here at Snap believe that storytelling matters now more than ever. And we got a bunch of kick-ass stories we want to share with you, but we also have to keep the lights on and my dog fed. Okay, I don't actually have a dog, I have a cat, but come on, we have a bunch of great gifts waiting for you. We have this storytelling workshop, we have this Snap Live show download, and this poppin' mixtape, so help us spread some love one story at a time. Support storytelling with a beat at snapjudgment.org. Welcome back to the Snap Judgment Live Aces Wild Special. Our next story is truly an amazing performance, and it deals with some adult issues. Sensitive listeners should note, and we're going to join the show already in progress, Snap Judgment Live Aces Wild. And now I get to bring out a veteran. Someone who was on this stage from day one, actually on our very first Snap Judgment episode. He is now a man who's busy changing the world, one bad guy at a time, a rebel without a pause, uh, fighting a man for the good of everybody else. 
He's a dear friend of mine. Please put your hands together for Mr. Josh Healy. There's a famous story in my family. When my parents got married, there were two family members who were supposed to be kept as far apart from each other as possible. My great-grandmother, Barbara, and my other great-grandma, Henrietta. Barbara and Henrietta, two little old Jewish ladies, two feisty, powerful giants, each standing tall at four foot ten in a bushka and heels. And they were supposed to be kept as far apart from each other as possible, but there was a mix-up at the reception, and somehow they got seated at the same table. And when they did, they proceeded to play every immigrant's favorite game, Who's Had a Tougher Life? Barbara came out swinging. She said, well, uh, you know that my family, we had to uh, flee Russia when I was five because the army came and burned down our whole village. Henrietta was like, all right, we gonna fight? Let's play. <laughs> Henrietta's like, oh yeah, well, the boat my family came over on, it was so bad, my little sister almost died before we got to Ellis Island. Barbara, she comes back flexing. She's like, oh yeah? Yeah, that's all you got, son? Uh, and obviously, this is how immigrant Jewish women talk, uh, like bad battle rappers, straight out of the shtetl. Uh, she's like, yeah, uh, well, uh, you know, I had to drop out of school when I was 12 to work at a sweatshop on the Lower East Side. Henrietta's like, I wish I worked at a sweatshop. My whole family was unemployed during the Depression. We survived 10 years off Spam and matzo balls. No soup, just the matzo balls. <laughs> and by this point, a whole crowd has formed around. All the families at the table, even my newlywed parents, they want to see the heavyweight bout. It's Ali versus Frazier. It's Nas versus Jay-Z. It's Barbara Rosenblum versus Henrietta Goldblatt, and Barbara goes in for the knockout punch. She stands on top of her chair, and in front of 150 guests at the party of my parents' wedding, shouts out, I had 12 abortions. <laughs> All self-performed. And that's the story that popped into my head when my girlfriend told me she was pregnant. And I'm not proud that that was the first thing that popped into my head, but given what happened next, it was kind of crazy. I was 19 years old, a sophomore in college, so I was smart enough to know that when your girl tells you she's pregnant, the first sentence out your mouth should probably not contain the word abortion. <laughs> so instead, 
I went for something far more sensitive uh, and mature. When she told me, I was like, uh, for real? <laughs> like, for real, for real? You sure you're not just a little late? She said, I don't think so. It's been 15 days. Uh, 15 days? Man, I know nothing about women's bodies. But I thought I would be able to notice if she was preggers. Like she smelled different. Maybe like applesauce. Or every time she breathed, there'd be a little more air coming out. You know? Her name was Esther. We'd been together for six months. And I said I love you to her every night. But I also said I love you every night to my couch. So I wasn't really sure what this was. Well, I say, there's only one way to find out. We go to the store, come back, and before I know it, I'm looking at this pregnancy test I just bought at Walgreens for less than a super burrito. I open the box, the cardboard cracking like thunder. I'm 19. I can't even legally have a drink to celebrate if it comes out positive. I mean negative. I mean, we go to the bathroom together. It's the first time I've seen a woman pee. It feels like she's going on forever. Like she's been storing the Pacific in her bladder for just this moment. Finally, the trickle stops. She hands me the stick, eyes closed. You look. Ladies first, I say. She does. She takes a breath. Looks like I'm gonna be drinking for two from now on. I'm pregnant. For real, I say? For real, for real, she says, picking up her pants. <laughs> so what should we do? And I know what I'm supposed to say, right? I'm supposed to say something supportive and strong and sensitive and sweet and serious all at the same time, which is really easy in the moment. So I say, uh, maybe we should try another test. <laughs> but I can tell that is not the answer she is going for right now. So I say, look, 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 uh, you know I'm here for you. I'm here with you. And whatever you want to do, you know I've got your back and apparently your belly. What I'm really thinking is, please say you're not ready. Please say you're not ready. I mean, I don't want her to do anything she doesn't want to do, but I do want her to do what I want her to do for what she wants to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Esther sits down. She takes a breath. She takes my hand. She puts it on her belly. 
She says, I mean, I know we're not ready. I'm too young, you're too dumb. <laughs> It's a direct quote. I know it's not right right now, but I've always wanted to be a mother. I've always wanted to have a daughter. I say, you'd be a great mother whenever you think the time is right. She says, you know, it's funny. Ever since I thought I might be pregnant, I started thinking about baby names. It was a, if it was a boy, I was thinking Dominic. And if it was a girl, Barbara. 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 I never told Esther about my great-grandma before. Uh, last month, I brought her home to meet the, my family, to meet the women who raised me. Strong women with old names like Dorothy and Deborah and Francis, my grandma, my mom, my aunt. I'd fallen in love with an Esther, a name so old when you're born it comes with an AARP card. <laughs> I was raised by strong women, women who taught me how to show respect, do my own dishes, say my daily prayers to Audre Lorde and Billie Jean King. It was my Aunt Fran who taught me how to roll a condom onto a cucumber. I was not paying close enough attention, apparently. And it was my mom who first told me about the strongest woman in our family history, the woman who stole the show at her own wedding, my great-grandma, Barbara, who fled Russia and worked in sweatshops and had 12 abortions, all self-performed. No birth control, no clinics on the Lower East Side. She almost died in a tenement bathroom on Avenue C. But she lived. She lived and she fought for women and workers and immigrants and everything a nice socialist Jew used to do. She danced in the streets. She danced in the streets when they passed Roe v. Wade. She lived a long, hard, beautiful life like her, Barbara. When Esther said that name, I started to change my mind about what we should do. I said, maybe this mistake wasn't a mistake after all. Maybe we're supposed to have a daughter. She said, yeah, maybe not. Maybe not right now. I still need to become who I am to become a woman. And you, Josh, you definitely need some time to become a man. <laughs> and so a couple weeks later, we went to the clinic. And it was quick. It was safe. When the man with the picket sign outside said he'd pray for Esther's soul, she said, hey, good looking out. I held Esther's hand from when the doctor went in until the doctor came out. And yes, there were tears, pain, sadness, relief, all of the above. 
When it was done, I asked her how she felt. She said, I feel kind of hungry. <laughs> Let's go get some lunch. And there were more tears over that meal. But when it was done, she was good and we were good. At the end of the day, it was just another, it was just a Wednesday at a doctor's office. No hangers, no back alley botch jobs. We were able to go on with our lives and graduate. And now, and now today, 10 years later, I'm still with Esther. Um, yeah, you can clap for that. I do. And uh, she is my wife. She is, she is my midwife wife. Her job is to help bring babies into the world. And she helps women find their power, helps them heal, helps them make their own decisions, their own choice. And last month, Esther told me that she's ready now. She wants to have kids. She needs to have a daughter. There are lessons she needs to pass on. I agree, and I know someone else who would too. And we don't have any kids yet, sorry mom. We don't have any news yet, but we're already talking about names. And if it's a girl, there's one name, one heavyweight champ at the top of the list. Thank you. Joshua Healy. Holler when you hear it. Holler. The amazing Josh Healy. Josh Healy. You can see with your eyes this magical performance in all its glory at stampjudgment.org or get the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Now, Josh has a new web series coming out called The North Pole. Look for it. TheNorthPoleShow.com Original score by Alex Mandel Performed by Alex and the Snap Players David Brandt and Tim Frick And we are not done No way are we done Because when we come back Jamie DeWolf opens a very dark door And the Snap Judgment Aces Wild Special continues Stay tuned Hey, this is Mark Ristich. Sometimes when people do actually recognize me, they're like, hey, are you the Uber producer? I'm like, yeah. They're like, are you the guy that does those killer beats? I'm like, no, that's Pat Bassini Miller. Or did you produce that great story on, I'm like, no, that's Anna Sussman, Adiza Egan, Nancy Lopez. You know, I'm not the host with the rich, deep voice, and I'm not a dynamic live storyteller. I'm really not anything without those people around me. So help me make the show that you love. Support us at snapjudgment.org. And if you're like me, you have a million things on your plate, and you're trying to do them all, but eventually you get to the ones that matter. Show us that we matter to you at snapjudgment.org. I will be uber grateful. From WNYC, welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Aces Wild special. Now, for our next story, 
We're going to switch venues and drop right into the San Francisco Snap Judgment Live at the Norse Theater. And please know, while this next story is an absolute masterpiece of modern storytelling, of which we are extremely proud, sensitive listeners and those with small children should be advised. Snap Judgment Live, Aces Wild. Now, our next guest is a true Renaissance man. He's a writer, a poet, a filmmaker, a director. The last time he told a story on the Snap stage, it touched millions of people around the world, his tale of family legacy. Today, he digs even closer to home. Please put your hands together for Mr. Jamie DeWolf. My daughter loved bedtime stories. Tucking her in, I'd read her three fairy tales a night before she'd finally fall asleep. Her favorites were Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty, but there was one I'd always skip. When she'd ask me why I wouldn't read her Red Riding Hood, I said, I can't. It gives me nightmares. Maybe someday when you're older. I'd kiss her goodnight, lock the windows, check the doors, and smoke alone on the porch at midnight knowing there's worse than wolves in this world. Vallejo, California. I'm 21 years old. My girlfriend's 23, and we move with our newborn daughter into the only apartment complex welfare can afford. The rent is cheap, because we're the first room next to the only door of a three-story complex, and the doorbell is broken. So every hour, people are pounding on the front door, waking up my daughter from the crib, and sending us screaming into the hall, next time, call first. The complex is next to a bus stop and a porn store. We sleep with a baseball bat beside our bed, and the only thing that separates us from the street is that door and our deadbolt. All I want is to shut out the world, to ignore the slurred screams from the second story, the passed out people on the sidewalk, but I can't ignore the girl in the hallway. It's hard to. I see her every day. She has a got-to smile, messy brown hair, and a doll that dangles from its only arm. Every day she asks me, what's your baby's name? I say, it's Nadia, remember? She always wants to come inside, but I don't know which door she belongs to. Don't want parents to watch her going into a stranger's home. So I say, maybe another time, okay, honey? Why don't you go run along now? Go play. Every day I see her, coloring books on the staircase, just another part of the complex, like the white guy on the porch with bad tattoos who asks me for a cigarette every time I take out the trash. Every morning, what's your baby's name? I answer, and she never remembers, till it becomes just another noise like the gunshots a block away or the sirens that become my daughter's first lullabies. One day the girl is crying, so she's hungry, so we finally invite her inside, and I give her cookies and milk like a stray cat. She wants to stay, but it's our daughter's bedtime. You gotta go to your own home now, okay, honey? I'll see you tomorrow. She waved goodbye to my daughter, then I locked the door behind her and left her in the hallway. The next day, she disappears. 
It's December 9th, 1999. By midnight, cops are knocking. Two days later, FBI agents are pounding on the front door. News van spotlights blast through the blind. Now the missing girl has become an official case. When I see her face on the 10 o'clock news, it's the first time I realize I never knew her name. Ziana Fairchild. She's seven years old, born in prison to a mother in for auto theft. They sent her to her great aunt Hawaii to grow up swimming in warm waters until her mother demanded her back. Ziana's only lived in our complex for six months. The rumor is her mother's been running meth missions down to Mexico and leaves Ziana for days alone on the staircase. The neighbors two doors down have been feeding her, even called Child Protective Services, but nothing changed. The rest of us did nothing and locked our doors to a girl we saw every day. Now her great aunt flies back from Hawaii with an army of reporters, national news, candlelight vigils, thousands of posters on every street corner. Hundreds of thousands volunteer to march through forests and marshes looking for an answer no one wants to find at their feet. Ziana's mother and her boyfriend are too strung out for the spotlight. I overhear him slur about having to make another appearance at the volunteer center in the morning as the police monitor their every move, building their case. Bobby, the boyfriend, was the last person to see Ziana. He's a guy that asks me for cigarettes every time I take out the trash. His story of that morning changes every day. First, he dropped her off at school, then he took her to the bus stop, then maybe she walked alone. They give him a polygraph test and he fails and his prison record hits the front page. He's an ex-con, just released for holding down his ex-girlfriend's infant son under scalding hot water. His past now exposed, Bobby stops showing his face. The neighbor above me with a tattooed tear says, if Ziana doesn't come home, Bobby's gonna go missing himself one day. Bobby and the mother avoid the press as canines sniff our staircase and lab technicians spray our dumpster for bloodstains. The word is they don't have enough evidence to charge Bobby as the weeks turn into months and the reward grows to 75 grand. Bobby and the mother know the world is watching, so they try to move out at midnight, but cameras come out of the shadows. Neighbors screaming at Ziana's mother for sticking with this monster. She shoves reporters out of the way, and then there's a moment outside by the car where I'm alone with Bobby. He asks me for a cigarette. I say no way. I wanna smash his face in to hurt him the way he hurts children. But then the cameras come back, and I know I missed my moment. They drive away past a poster of a gap-toothed girl grinning on the street corner. It's been eight months, and Ziana still hasn't come home. Every new parent knows you're paranoid enough of thumbtacks on the carpet and every sharp edge to a table. But now I'm awake until sunrise against my daughter's crib, afraid she's going to miss a single breath. A month later, another girl goes missing, only blocks away. She's eight years old, kidnapped for three days, handcuffed to a stick shift in a parking lot as her abductor is inside a Home Depot, shopping for a body bag to fit her height. 
She escapes, a car full of Polaroids and duct tape, flags down a trucker on the freeway, and finally, the wolf of Vallejo bears his face. It wasn't Bobby. I was wrong. We were all wrong. It was worse. His name is Curtis Dean Anderson, a taxi driver and a family friend of Ziana, a man, a man who I'd opened the apartment complex door for many times before. He was a monster, a deadbolt didn't stop. Just another cab driving down the same street my daughter took her first steps on. A man who watched Ziana walk alone to school every morning as her neighbors locked our doors on a girl we saw every day. A year after she went missing, they found Ziana's skull in the Santa Cruz Mountains, identified only by her grinning gap teeth. Curtis pled guilty to avoid the death penalty, claimed to have killed a dozen more girls, but their bodies were never found. He bragged to his cellmate about what he had done to Ziana, details I would never repeat. He died of natural causes in prison the same year my daughter reached Ziana's age. Ziana was across every headline, but now she's yellowing newsprint, empty volunteer centers, a testament to locked doors. She was a story I could never tell my daughter. Why Red Riding Hood gave me nightmares. Some girls never make it out of the forest. Some stories children should never hear. It's been 15 years, and I wish I had someone to apologize to. I don't know if I could have saved you, but I could have done something. Could have invited you in instead of shutting you out with the deadbolt. I'm sorry. I can't drive past our old apartment complex without thinking of you trying to open our door with seven-year-old arms. I didn't know your story when you were alive, but I can tell it now and ask the world to remember your name. Ziana Fairchild, the girl I left in the hallway. for a moment of silence, but I want to ask a moment of noise for her. Make noise so she can hear you, please. together one more time for Jamie the Wolf. I appreciate the bravery it took to come out here and share that story. 
Jamie DeWolf. The incredible Jamie DeWolf. The score was composed by Alex Mandel, performed by Alex and the Snap Players, Tim Frick and David Brandt. You can see this story and every story from the Aces Wild episode. Incredible performances. See it at snapjudgment.org. You can hear a special podcast-only interview with Jamie about the background of this story. Only on the Snap Judgment podcast. Get it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud. However you get your podcast, you've got to hear this. Subscribe to Snap Judgment right now. And note that even though this is not the news, Never, 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 ever is this the news. But this is WNYC. Snappers, when you support this show, it means the boss man goes away. It means we tell the stories we want to tell. It means we go where the story leads us. We talk to whoever we want to talk to us. Your support makes Snap fearless. And we need fearless storytelling like we've never needed it before. Support Snap Judgment at snapjudgment.org right now. Pause the show. Snapjudgment.org. If you've ever stopped dead in your tracks listening to this program, pause it right now because it's yours. Donate whatever makes sense to you at snapjudgment.org and get great stuff in return. The clock is ticking. Support the stories you love at snapjudgment.org.